Well, good morning. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. So excited that all of you are with us this morning. Just to set up the conversation we'll have this morning, we've been walking through the book of Acts since February. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Shaq and I sat down and talked about how not only we have how much we have enjoyed getting to walk through Acts in this detail, but also just noticing that there are moments that when you're focused on passage to passage, you sometimes miss larger, broader themes that have been developing throughout the course of the book. And we wanted to take today, it's, we just finished last week Acts chapter 14, which is the end of Paul, his first missionary journey and felt like this created a good opportunity for us to just not focus on one particular passage this morning, but to have a conversation about one of those broader themes that has been emerging through the last few chapters in the book of Acts. And so that's what we'll do today. Have you ever walked through a season, a silent season, where it feels like you're a million miles away from doing what you're supposed to do. Where it feels like you're a million miles away from being who you're supposed to be. Have you ever found yourself in a valley, looking around, wondering how you got there, how you'll find your way through, and doubting what awaits on the other side? Have you ever believed you were on the right track, doing the right thing, only to find yourself on the sideline? Watching as everyone else's life keeps moving forward, as they're getting promoted and getting married and starting a family, and you can't find your way forward, it seems. Have you ever felt lost and confused just trying to make it through the day, not even sure of who you are or what you're doing anymore? A year ago, this weekend, so a year ago today, Pastor Shaq and I sat here in front of you and shared that both of us needed to take a step back from our roles. Pastor Shaq cut his hours back and worked part-time, and I took the next three and a half months off. Both of us started working with our own counselors and spiritual directors. I spent four months meeting with my counselor every week for two hours. I still see him, but now once a month for two hours. I spent months meeting with my spiritual director trying to rediscover a love for Jesus. I did. I spent months working to believe that every one of my relationships wasn't fragile, that I wasn't leavable, and that I was at my core worthy of being loved. It was a season where I felt like I was in a valley, where everything felt silent, like I'd been put on the sidelines, that at the exact moment in my pastoral life when I should have been thriving, and I should have been the absolute 
at the pinnacle of what I could do pastorally, it all came crashing down. And I was unable to live the life, I felt unable to live the life I believed I'd been called to. What I didn't know a year ago today, sitting here at that time talking with you, I'm not even sure I knew really to hope for it a year ago, was that a year later today, I'd stand here talking with you and be completely different. I imagine, I imagine that I look the same to all of you. I mean, I've lost a little bit of weight, so maybe I look better. Thank you. Just gonna assume that was you, Dan. Was that you? Yeah. Didn't even have to look up, I just knew. I don't think my personality has changed wildly, and yet how I understand the world and who I am is completely different. I'm different, and the way that I know, understand, and love Jesus is different. The change I've experienced, the transformation, if you will, did not happen on a mountaintop. It required a journey through a valley, a journey that I spent months trying to ignore and avoid. In his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers writes, the mountaintop is not meant to teach us anything, but the valley to make us something. It's in the valley we're shaped and formed into something new. It's in the silent season that Jesus can best work himself into us so we can best fulfill his calling on our lives. It's ironic to me then that most of us do what I did last summer, ignore and avoid Jesus' gentle nudges and invitations to follow him into the valley. Instead of willingly entering in and trusting Jesus, we do everything we can to avoid it. We scratch and we claw and we fight to hold on to our lives just as they are right where they are as we know them. We know we might need to become something new to fulfill our calling and yet we resist change. We want to remain in control where everything makes sense. Been studying the book of Acts since February. Last week we finished chapter 14, and it was just six chapters ago that Luke, our guide through Acts, introduced us to a character named Saul. It's at Stephen's trial where after Stephen proclaims the good news of Jesus, he's dragged out of Jerusalem by an angry mob and stoned to death. And it's there, after Stephen's been murdered, that Luke writes, and Saul approved of their killing him. At this moment in his life, Saul is at the absolute top of Jewish cultural, political, and religious life. He's revered. He's feared, he's influential, he's likely well-resourced. We know he was born in the city of Tarsus into a well-resourced and influential family 
who, when Saul was 10, sent him from Tarsus to Jerusalem to study at the feet of a rabbi named Gamaliel. During his life, and still to this day, Gamaliel is considered one of the greatest teachers in all of Jewish history. Kings and queens sought out his insight and wisdom. Paul's family had the resource and wherewithal to send him from Tarsus to Jerusalem to quite literally study at what we might consider one of the most expensive private schools. By his mid-20s, he'd become a member of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful body of Jewish, of religious leaders who were responsible for governing every aspect of Jewish religious, cultural, economic, and political life. And we know that he was a Roman citizen a status that provided him civil and legal rights throughout the empire that 90 to 95% of the people did not have. He was in the 1%. All of this is why Saul, later in his life, writing as Paul, describes himself this way in his letter to the Philippians. He writes, if someone else they ha think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Saul was the best of the Jewish people both religiously and ethnically. When Luke reintroduces Saul a chapter later in Acts 9, Saul has just received papers from the high priest, granting him permission to travel to Damascus in ancient northeast Palestine, where he would go from synagogue to synagogue looking for followers of Jesus, who if he found them, he would arrest in prison and take back to Jerusalem and put on trial before the Sanhedrin. But it's in verse 3 that Luke tells us Jesus finds Saul along the road outside Damascus, that Jesus talks with him, blinds him, and in all of it redirects Saul's life and heart. Saul, the best of the Jewish people, a Roman citizen and member of the Sanhedrin, educated by one of Judaism's most revered rabbis, born into wealth and power, found by Jesus on his way to persecute Jesus' followers. Luke tells us Saul was taken to Damascus, where he spent three days blind, only for the Spirit to send a man named Ananias to lay hands on Saul and heal him. When Jesus found Saul on the Damascus Road, he was at the top of his life. He was at the top of Jewish life. He was in complete control of his world and his destiny. And yet that encounter on the Damascus Road initiated a journey in Saul's life that would last years. A journey where Saul would relinquish control over his life, world, destiny, and even body. He'd step off the mountaintop where he'd lived his entire life and enter into a valley, a silent season, where over time he'd become someone so much more 
than he was before. And someone so categorically different that Luke will change his name to Paul, a name that means humble. Immediately after Saul is healed in Damascus, he travels to Arabia where he spends three years. This detail is not included in the book of Acts. If you read the narrative, he's in Damascus and then he's in Jerusalem. You have to piece together Paul's other letters to know that he traveled in between Damascus and Jerusalem to Arabia. Not much is known about Saul's life in Arabia, though N.T. Wright, an author and theologian and considered arguably to be the modern church's foremost scholar on Paul, he speculates that while in Arabia, Saul traveled to Mount Sinai the place where God entered into a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the place where God gave Moses the commandments, and the place where God, where the prophet Elijah traveled after everything in his life had been turned upside down. At that point in Elijah's life, he just defeated all of Baal's priests on a mountaintop by calling fire down, only to discover that Israel still wasn't turning back. To God. Saul traveled to Sinai likely for the same reason as Elijah. Everything in his life had been turned upside down, and he needed to return to the place that so many of the people he'd spent his life learning about and admiring where they had met God. Some of us have places like this in our life that we need to return to. For me, it's a beach in North Carolina. Also, sometimes the first baseline of PNC Park. Places where we go and we feel at peace. Places where we go and we are able to reconnect to ourselves and maybe even hear God more clearly. Where is that place for you? Just as God met with Elijah in the Old Testament, just as God in the Old Testament sent Elijah back to Damascus, where Elijah would anoint new kings and appoint a new prophet, so Jesus meets with Saul at Mount Sinai and sends him back to Damascus too to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And after three years, he does. He returns to Damascus preaching with power, according to Luke. Only somehow, it all goes wrong. And just a few weeks or months after arriving back in Damascus, a group of people set out to kill Saul. He then travels to Jerusalem. You might remember that his reception there is cold. His old friends want to kill him, and the people he's hoping will be his new friends are the people he had once wanted to kill. It takes Barnabas advocating for him, for him to be accepted into the Jerusalem church. And just like in Damascus, he begins preaching, and just like in Damascus, it all goes sideways. 
This time, though, instead of fleeing to Arabia, he is sent back to Tarsus, the city where he was born. Let's just pause here for a moment. What do you think this feels like for Saul? He's at the top. He's the best at what he does. And then Jesus interrupts his life. He spends three years in obscurity. Pretty sure he's heard from Jesus. Pretty sure he's supposed to go back to Damascus. Pretty sure Jerusalem's the next right step only for the apostles in Jerusalem to take Paul and say, you need to get on a boat and go back home. It had to be a destabilizing moment in his life. It had to be so confusing and deflating. Back home? Luke tells us, and as we know throughout the New Testament letters, Saul's going to spend a decade in Tarsus. It's not a short journey home. It's not a few naps on his mom's couch and some home-cooked meals and then back in the game. It's 10 years. It's a decade in the valley. A decade in obscurity where the person who will become the most influential person in the life of the early church is completely removed from the story of the early church. What do you think that was like? How confusing do you think that was? What do you think he was thinking when he got off the boat in Tarsus? and looked at his hometown. Everything's been stripped away. Everything he's known is no longer enough to get him where Jesus has called him. He's not in control of his life anymore. And it's here, in this silent decade, in the valley, that Jesus will do his most transformative work in Saul's life. In the silent season and in obscurity, Jesus will build into Paul everything he lacks but needs to fulfill his calling. N.T. Wright speculates that over the next 10 years during this valley season or silent season, three broad themes emerge in Saul's life. First, he enters into his family business and becomes a tent maker where he worked with leather and other fabrics to make things like tents and awnings. Just a few years ago, he'd been a member of the Sanhedrin, and now he's a laborer. But what we know through Paul's writing is that this craft will become the means by which he supports himself in his ministry after leaving Tarsus. That in every city he goes to, he will set up a shop in the market and he will buy 
the materials he needs in those cities, and he will make tents and awnings and sell them. This craft he learns in Tarsus becomes the means by which he will support himself and his ministry. Second, he prayed and he studied. He spent time with Jesus and became like Jesus. He learned Jesus' teachings, fitting together his new life as a follower of Jesus into his old life as a Pharisee and synthesizing these two new beliefs, his understanding of Jesus in the gospel into all of his Old Testament knowledge and understanding. It's likely here in Tarsus that Saul begins formulating the thoughts that will lead him to new theological revelations in the early church. Things like there's no separation between Jew and Gentile, neither male nor free, neither slave, I'm sorry, neither male nor female, slave nor free, for all are one in Jesus. This theological foundation is laid in Tarsus. And third, Tarsus was cosmopolitan. Think New York City, a center for learning in higher education. For 10 years, he was able to take in his culture's best philosophical teaching and thinking. There were schools dedicated to Platonic thought and Aristotelian thought, people talking in the streets. He'd have been able to sift through all of the best teaching his culture had to offer, wrestle through it with friends over meals and customers at his stall in the market. And it creates the foundation that leads to moments like in Acts 13 where Paul walks into Pisidian Antioch, looks around and is able to discern the city's gods, religious systems and trust structures and then speak directly to them. It's in Tarsus that Jesus builds into Saul the skills needed to fulfill his calling. But it's also in Tarsus where Saul learns to deeply identify with Jesus to the point of being willing to die for Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul writes that he received the 40 lashes minus one five times. It's one of the most degrading things that could have been done to a human in his culture. It's a gruesome punishment. Not one of these beatings is recorded in the book of Acts. Where do you think they happened? Tarsus. Three times Paul was beaten with rods. 
Only one is recorded in Acts. When do you think the other two occurred? Tarsus. Three times he was shipwrecked. Only one is recorded in Acts. When do you think the other two occurred? Tarsus. It's likely they all occurred during the 10 years he was in Tarsus on the sidelines, in the valley, trying to figure out how to be faithful, trying to figure out his new life in Jesus, and trying to figure out what the heck Jesus was doing with his life. It's in the valley Saul developed the skills to fulfill his calling, and it's in the valley he found oneness with Jesus. A kind of oneness that enabled him to fearlessly proclaim the gospel, even if doing so meant he might lose his life. One more detail. It's likely in Tarsus that Saul's heart was crushed. According to N.T. Wright, he likely would have returned home where his betrothed would have been waiting for him. He likely would have returned home and at some point while being home gotten married, except he comes home a Christian and his family and likely his betrothed all reject him. And so as we read through the New Testament and understand him to be single, it's because likely his engaged, his fiance rejected him. It's in Tarsus that Paul learns there's only one hero in his story, and it isn't him. It's Jesus. And it's in the valleys that we learn there's only one hero in our story, and it isn't us. It's Jesus. There, Paul learns to enjoy the mountaintop and the valley. He learns to be content with plenty and nothing. He learns to rejoice in joys and sufferings. It's there he learns his new life with Jesus will be different than his old life. Instead of power, weakness. Instead of wealth, dependence. Instead of fame, marginalization. Instead of security, vulnerability. It's in Tarsus that Jesus becomes Paul's one and only. It's in the valley that Paul finds life abundant a life that is truly life and church, it's where we can too. To become more like Jesus, sometimes we have to be willing to enter into valley seasons. The transformational journey Jesus invites Saul into is a journey Jesus will invite every one of us into at a point in our life as well. A journey where we leave behind what is known and comfortable and follow him willingly into the valley and embark on a journey where we can be made new. Where our character and identity can be brought into greater alignment with Jesus so we can be like him and do what he did in our families, relationships, and neighborhoods. So what are we to do with all of this? What does all of this mean for us today? 
I think it means that when Jesus invites us into the valley, we shouldn't kick against it. We should follow and trust him. When we find ourselves in a silent season, when we are confused and lost and not sure of what's happening in our life or why it's happening, we're invited to embrace it. When Jesus is gently nudging us that something inside us isn't right, that we need him to make us into something new and different for what's ahead, we should say yes and move into the valley. We should be willing to take a step back, sit on the sideline, and embrace obscurity for a season. When we're invited into the valley, we need to courageously enter it. It's there that Jesus finds us in a new way, where we are reshaped and reformed, and Jesus builds his character into us. It's where we can become who we were meant to be so we can fulfill our destiny. Didn't realize that was gonna rhyme until I just said it out loud. And so we can become like Jesus to do what Jesus did for our coworkers, family and friends, for our children and spouses, for our neighbors and neighborhoods, and for each other. I believe throughout our lives, Jesus is gonna invite us into valley seasons because he has a good work, a calling planned for us. A calling and a plan that he wants us to step into with him. I can tell you that after the past year, a year for me that was filled with really hard and difficult moments, moments of facing significant trauma, moments of just full body sobbing, tearful apologies, and moments where Julia would just hold me on the couch. My life is richer. Over the past year, I've discovered a new life with Jesus that's different than my old life with Jesus. Like Saul, instead of, instead of chasing power, weakness, instead of wanting more recognition, being okay with obscurity, instead of desiring wealth, dependence, and instead of idolizing security, vulnerability. Church, let's not avoid or ignore Jesus' invitation into the valley. When it comes, let's embrace it. There we can become more like Jesus, so we can learn to do more of what Jesus did. It's in the valley we learn in new and profound ways there's only one hero, one person worthy of everything that we are. And it's Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the story we have in Saul's life. Thank you for the way that even in the life of someone that we can see from a distance as being so influential, as having so much 
just power to proclaim your gospel, someone responsible for hundreds of churches and thousands of people knowing you. That even in his story, there's a valley season. Even in his story, there's a moment on a sideline where he's confused. Thank you for these stories, Father, and thank you for the hope that is in them, the reality that we can be made new in the midst of them. Jesus, meet us. We love you. And we pray in your name. Amen.